Well, let's begin in prayer. Our Father, your word is life and it is truth. And so as we come to hear it now, we pray that you'd have mercy upon us, that you would help us not only to hear it, but to believe it and to live it for Christ's sake and to your glory. Amen. We'll meet the church in Cabra, Spain. It is the church of Brett and Ruth Richardson, uh, one of the missionary families that we here uh, support. As you can see, the church in Cabra is rather small. It consists of just 10 families or 40 people in total. The church seems even smaller, I guess, when you consider that it's in a town with a population of 21,000. And when you consider that this is the only evangelical church in that town. And it's not as though this church is new. No, it's been 25 years and eight missionary families that has built it up to what it is today. So what is it about Cabra that makes it so difficult for the church to grow there? This past week, I thought that I would ask the question of Ruth Richardson herself. And this is what she had to say. Meet Mary of the Mountain. Mary of the Mountain is the official patroness of Cabra, writes Ruth. For Cabra people, she is their mother. That is not to say that all Cabra people are particularly religious. In fact, for many, the celebrations associated with this statue and other statues are just a good reason to get together with family and party. For others, however, there is an intimate emotional bond and adoration of this piece of plaster decorated with gold and velvet and immaculate embroidery. A number of families in the town are employed full-time in the production and maintenance of her wardrobe, jewellery, float, flowers... Much of business in town revolves around the various clubs that support statues like this one. Rare is the shop that doesn't have a framed portrait of the statue in all her finery. Our butcher, a man in his 30s, reminds us that he thinks the whole religion thing is a lot of hogwash. He has a framed statue of Mary of the Mountain in his shop. It's either because he or his mum think it unlucky not to have it, or a significant part of his clientele wouldn't buy from him if it wasn't there. It's worth mentioning that most of the towns have a different statue of Mary that they call their own. There is significant rivalry between the towns over their statue's value in strength, beauty or power in answering prayer. Ruth goes on to say, For most Cabra people, being from Cabra is like one's nationality, even more so than being Spanish. Denying the patroness and mother of the town would be like burning the flag of an Aussie digger. Why is the church in Cabra so small? Why is the Richardson's work so difficult? Well, because they're in a town where the vested interests of the people are tied up in this Mary of the Mountain. It's obvious, isn't it, that they find their cultural identity in Mary of the Mountain. They find their civic pride in her. Many of them find their businesses tied up in her. 
She's the one that puts food on their table. There are all these vested interests in Mary of the Mountain. And so the people of Cabra are largely not prepared to give up these interests in order to live in conformity to the gospel of Christ. That's the situation that currently faces the Richardsons in Cabra. And it is exactly the same situation that faced the Apostle Paul when he came to the city of Ephesus 2,000 years ago. You see, when Paul came to the city of Ephesus, he didn't find people worshipping Mary of the Mountain. No, he found them worshipping someone else. Meet the goddess Artemis. The goddess Artemis has been worshipped in this part of the world that Paul is in for hundreds of years. She had been worshipped as the mother of gods, the, the mother of men. This is a statue of the goddess Artemis. Pretty little thing, isn't she? The Ephesians believed that they had been set apart by the gods to be her guardian. They thought this because a stone that looked a little bit like Artemis had fallen from the sky and landed there in Ephesus. Most of the commentators reckon that what fell from the sky was actually a meteorite, a meteorite that bore some resemblance to the goddess Artemis. In the same way that a, a fence post at Kuji could look like a lot like a religious icon, well, so did this stone that fell from the sky. She became their patroness. The people of Ephesus, well, they built a temple in which to house this piece of rock. And it was a magnificent temple indeed. Made out of marble, it became renowned throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, so magnificent was the temple of Artemis that it became known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple was supported by 127 massive columns. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. In fact, Philon of Byzantium wrote... I have seen the walls and hanging gardens of ancient Babylon, the statue of Olympian Zeus, the Colossus of Rhodes, the mighty work of the high pyramids and the tomb of Musilus. But when I saw the temple at Ephesus rising to the clouds, all these other wonders were put in the shade. You see, this was the Sydney Opera House. This was the Eiffel Tower of Ephesus. And it was a great source of pride for the people. But Artemis was also a great source of financial gain for the people of Ephesus. You see, each month, or each year around March, April, Ephesus hosted the month-long festival of Artemis. And it was a time of carnivals and, and religious celebration. And pilgrims flocked to Ephesus from all over the empire. They came there to participate in what were quite impressive ceremonies to Artemis. There were offerings, there were athletic competitions, there were plays and concerts, there was great banquets and revelry. So you see, the goddess Artemis brought not only cultural pride to the people of Ephesus, but she also brought in big bickies for those in the tourist industry. She meant she brought in big bickies for people like this fella. 
Meet Demetrius. Demetrius was a silversmith. He was a guy who made the silver shrines of Artemis. Shrines that would have been sold to local worshippers and to pilgrims. They would have so- he would have sold them to them. They would have taken these shrines to the temple and dedicated them to the goddess. Then they would have been able to take them home and use them as family worship centres or, or little amulets, little lucky charms or um, just plain old souvenirs. You see, if there was an Artemis souvenir spoon that you could buy and take home and hang up next to your big banana souvenir spoon, Artemis was the man, uh, Demetrius was the man who made it. Demetrius was part of a massive industry, an industry dependent upon the worship of Artemis, which is why Demetrius was so upset that the Apostle Paul had been converting people to a new religion, a religion which denounced idol worship. In fact, so upset was Demetrius with what Paul was doing that he decided to call a union meeting. He called together all of the other craftsmen and all of the other people in those trades which were dependent upon the worship of Artemis. Demetrius calls them together. He tells them of the danger of Christianity And this makes the tradesmen furious. Read with me now from Acts chapter 18, uh, chapter 19, verse 23. Acts chapter 19, verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way, that is, Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is a danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who's worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! You see, Demetrius understands that the gospel is a threat to national pride. And he understands that it is a threat to religious fervour. But most of all, Demetrius understands that the gospel is a threat to his hip pocket. Because if the truth of Christianity is able to discredit Artemis, then no one's going to buy his trinkets anymore. That's his business gone. He's got vested interests in the continued worship of Artemis. Everyone in this meeting has. And they can see the potential impact of Christianity. And so they react in in angry defiance with a cultic chant of adoration, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, it's this chant that then throws the whole city into an uproar. The craftsmen and the other workers, they become the core of a horde that rushes violently into the city's huge amphitheatre. 
It's our theatre which remains largely intact today. On the way to the theatre, they grab a couple of Paul's travelling companions. Uh, They grab Gaius and Aristarchus. And then the, the horde's probably hoping to put pressure on the civic authorities to take action against these peddlers of Christianity. Meanwhile, Paul, uh, he, he learns of what's happening. Bold as he is, he wants to go right on into the middle of this rabble and defend his friends. But his Christian friends won't let him. And nor will some of the town's officials, because they all know that it's just too dangerous. Read with me from verse 29. Verse 29. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theatre. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The crowd well, it had now reduced itself to, to mob mentality. They're confused, they're divided. Some shouting one thing, some shouting another. It's this picture of misguided religious fervour, isn't it? I mean, most don't even realise why they're there. They don't know what's going on. All they do is they hear the chanting. They know that their religious pride, that their, their ethnic pride is somehow being threatened. They know something about that their, their vested interests are under attack somehow. And the result is this mindless zeal and fury. Well, it seems that there were also a number of local Jews present in the theatre that day. Uh, Jews who wanted to make it very clear that they were, no way associ- they were no way associated with this Christian bunch. And so in an attempt to distance themselves from the Christians, they put forward a representative named Alexander to speak on their behalf. But when the crowds realise that he's a Jew, well, they shout him down with their cultic cry for the next couple of hours. Read with me from verse 33. Verse 33. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! I tell you, I reckon there were quite a number of strepsils taken at the end of this day. Two hours they chanted. The hysterical crowd, they, they didn't want to listen to a Jew. Jews were as monotheistic as the Christians. Jews, they were as against idol worship as the Christians were. In their eyes, Christianity was nothing more than a Jewish sect. So they drowned out Alexander's attempted defence with their chanting. It takes the city clerk to finally defuse the situation. He stands up and he offers the crowd four reasons why their rioting was unnecessary. Four reasons why they should stop what they were doing. Firstly, he says that the well-known reputation of Ephesus as the guardian of Artemis is still well intact. 
that the city has not lost its reputation. Secondly, he says that the Christians have done nothing wrong. They haven't broken any laws. Thirdly, he says that if Demetrius thinks that they have done something wrong, well, he should go through the proper legal channels. He should take them to the courts. And finally, and most convincingly, I think, he says that they were all in danger of the Roman authorities charging them with rioting without a cause. Now, that was a charge that could see Ephesus lose its status as a free city. Read with me from verse 35. From verse 35. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. And I, I guess it's fair to assume that the crowd listened to the line of reasoning of the city clerk and that they all went away peacefully at that point. Then in the final part of our passage this morning, we won't be reading it, but in chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, we see there how Paul heads on out of Ephesus. We see there also how before he goes... He uses his time to encourage the Christians there in Ephesus. No doubt encouraging them to stand firm in the face of people like Demetrius. No doubt encouraging the Christians not to go back to the vested interests that they once had in paganism. But can you see how the vested interests that people have can make it very difficult for some of them to become Christians? Can you see that? Can you see how there's all sorts of social interests and financial interests and family interests, all of which make it very difficult for some people to become Christians? Difficult, yes. Impossible, no. In fact, we've seen, haven't we? We've seen people even here in Ephesus ready to give up the vested interests of their old way of life for the sake of the gospel. We've seen that. We've seen people who gave up their vested interests in the Artemis cult. That's why Demetrius was so concerned after all. Because the gospel was having an impact in the lives of the Ephesians. People were bringing their lives in line with the gospel and abandoning paganism. What's more, I'm sure you'll remember from last week, we met some Ephesian sorcerers. Sorcerers who heard the gospel and at that point were willing to give up their vested interests in sorcery. 
Remember how we saw how they burnt the, the scrolls that were so important to their business. They burnt them all. A bonfire coming to the value of something like $7 million. You see, the gospel can and the gospel does impact the lives of people, even with the most vested interests. It was true in Ephesus, and it is true in Cabra, Spain. Meet Manoli and David. Let me tell you a little bit about Manoli and David by reading a little bit more of Ruth Richardson's email. One thing that Cabra has that many towns in this part of Spain don't have is a group of people who stand for the Jesus of history and the Bible. People who know and trust him. For one Christian couple, Manoli and David, their financial situation was so significantly affected in becoming Christians. It was affected because David was a contract builder. But getting contracts in Cabra is closely linked with contacts. Most contacts are, are, are in brotherhoods which support the various statues. Manoli and David have had to leave Cabra for financial reasons in order to seek work. You see, friends, ultimately the gospel confronts two sorts of people. It confronts silversmiths and sorcerers. The silversmiths are the people like Demetrius, whose vested interests are so important to them that they're not really interested in truth. Or they know what is true, but they're not really willing to give up their vested interests for the sake of that truth. The other sort of people, well, they're like the sorcerers. These are the people who are prepared to give up their vested interests for the sake of truth. Manoli and David, well, they're like the sorcerers, aren't they? Willing to sacrifice their vested interests for the sake of the gospel. How easy it would have been for David and Manoli to have just kept their faith secret. How easy that would have been. How easy it would have been for them to just join in the Mary of the Mountain festivals. You know, to be seen to fit in. How easy it would have been for them to have been like that butcher in Cabra. How easy it would have been for them to keep a framed picture of Mary of the Mountain in their shop, even though they believed it was hogwash. It would have saved their business. But no, for Manoli and David, the truth of the gospel has taken precedence over their vested interests. And they have made great sacrifices for the sake of truth. As for the Richardsons, well, they've got their work cut out for them, haven't they? And so we really should pray for them as they continue to call the people of Cabra to bring their lives in line with the truth of the gospel. Well, there is one final group of people that I want you to meet this morning. Meet the people from Chatswood Presbyterian Church. 
good looking bunch, aren't they? These are the people who have come from all sorts or walks of life. But they have one thing in common. This group of people have all heard the truth of the gospel. Many of them have even come to believe it. But like the Christians in Cabra and like the Christians in Ephesus, the Christians at Chatswood Presbyterian Church face that ongoing struggle to give up the vested interests of their old way of life in order to live according to the truth of the gospel. And it has meant that they have become at odds with the society in which they live. What, is the, what does their society worship? Well, no, not Mary of the Mountain, and no, not the goddess Artemis. No, for the people in the community of Chatswood, their god is the god of money, the god of materialism, and it is what their society lives for. Yet the Christian faith is completely at odds with this God. The Christian faith teaches generosity and modesty and storing up treasure in heaven. But with the God of money comes those vested interests of power and influence and pleasure and comfort and respect and security These are the vested interests that make it so very hard for the people of Chatswood to become Christians. Often people in this community are so wrapped up in their vested interests that they don't even want to hear the truth of the gospel or others have heard the truth of the gospel but their vested interests keep them unwilling to be changed by it. But that's not the case for this good-looking bunch. No, no. They have brought the vested interests, they have brought the vested interests of their old way of life. They have brought the vested interests of materialism. They have come and they have brought them to be in line now with the gospel of truth. Haven't they? Haven't you? Haven't you? Parents, What are you teaching your children? Maybe it's worth us stopping for a moment and thinking about this. Maybe it's worth me offering you two simple tests. Two simple tests of whether or not you have left those old ways behind. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Test one. If we no longer follow the God of materialism like our pagan neighbours do, then I guess you would suspect that the nature of our possessions will be different. I imagine we would have less possessions than they would. I imagine that our possessions would be somewhat older, less shiny. I imagine that our possessions would be used for the good of other people. Well, think about the contents of your own home for a moment. And now, think of the contents of your pagan neighbour's home. Would you say that you have less possessions? 
that they're older, less shiny? Would you say that they're used for the good of other people, more so than your neighbour's possessions? Friends, if not, then maybe you still have vested interests in your old way of life. That's test one. Okay, here we go, test two. Ready? Christianity calls us to be generous and gospel-minded. Christianity calls us to be generous and gospel-minded with our money. Today is Mission Day. Mission Day has been strongly promoted here at church for the past four weeks. Let me ask you, have you come along today prepared to be generous with your money? Prepared to be generous to give to the work of the missionaries that we as a church support? Have you come prepared? Or did you forget? Well, if you forgot, then may I respectfully suggest that maybe the problem isn't so much with your memory as it is with the priorities of your heart. You see, it's true, isn't it? That we remember the things that are important to us. Okay, there's our two tests. How'd you go? Well, if you didn't come out of those tests looking too good, if you didn't come out of them feeling too good, maybe you need to realise that the problem is that you're still living like a silversmith and not a sorcerer. Maybe you still have the vested interests of your old way of life. Friend, today is the day where it's time for you to become a sorcerer. It's something I guess you didn't expect your pastor to tell you today, isn't it? Friend, today is the day for you to become a sorcerer. It's time for you to give up the old ways, to stop worshipping the God of our society. It's time to give up the vested interests of materialism. It's time to bring your life in line with the truth of the gospel. What is it we sing? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Believe it? Then live it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your gospel. We thank you for those, in the, uh, those early Christians who brought that truth to Ephesus. We thank you for the impact that it had there. And Father, we know that there are those in this world who, like Demetrius and the silversmiths, are more concerned with their vested interests than in the truth. We think of the people of Cabra in Spain who have entire social structures built around Mary of the Mountain. Father, we praise you for the church in Cabra and we pray that through the continued preaching of your word in this town that more and more might come to bring their lives in line with the truth of your gospel. We thank you for people like Manoli and David. We thank you for their sacrifices Keep their eyes fixed firmly on the prize and keep them faithful. We pray for our own community, worshipping the God of materialism as it does. Help us to be faithful in sharing with our neighbours the truth of the gospel 
and keep us from revelling in the same vested interests of our old way of life. Father, bring our lives in line with the gospel. Help us to be generous and to be modest. Help us to store up our treasure in heaven. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.